We're several months into the COVID-19 pandemic now, and we keep learning new things about the virus and its impacts. But there's one lesson through this that is not new. Housing stability and the availability of safe, decent, affordable housing is absolutely fundamental to people's lives and livelihoods, their opportunities, and their health. And there's not enough safe and decent, affordable, and available housing to meet the need. And that lesson is even clearer now. So as scientists work to develop vaccines to protect us from the virus, as public resources are focused on mitigating the near-term impacts of the virus, and as we try our best to keep ourselves and each other safe, we must also ask, what will we do about housing? Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. On today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at strategies for increasing affordable housing through the COVID-19 economic crisis, which just happens to be the title of an article co-authored by our guest today, Jenny Schutz. Jenny is a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. She's a leading voice on urban economics and housing policy, especially housing affordability, and has written extensively on land use regulation, housing prices, urban amenities, and neighborhood change. Jenny, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the details of the paper, uh, can we start with some background and motivation for it? Sure. So as you mentioned at the top, we've seen the the COVID-19, both the public health side and the economic recession, really highlight how big a problem housing instability has been in the U.S., especially for low-income renters. So even before the pandemic hit, more than 10 million renters were spending more than half their income on housing costs every month, which is just unsustainable. So since we've gone into lockdown, policymakers are very focused on the immediate crisis, anticipating a wave of evictions, potentially a spike in homelessness, and how to kind of head that off. What we wanted to do with this article was remind people not just to be focused on the short-term crisis, but to start thinking about how we're going to deal with housing policy in the recovery period, and in particular, if there are going to be some opportunities to increase the supply of affordable housing that don't come along very often. So that, that's great. So in the in the paper, you talk about three goals, uh, some approaches to meeting the first goal, and then you raise some policy design questions for stakeholders to consider. Uh, so let's talk through those in order, and you know, I'm sure we'll get sidetracked on the uh, along the way, but let's start with uh, those three goals. So we're, we're partly thinking about this as Local policymakers want to tailor their strategy to what their local housing market conditions are, and also to the capacity of local uh, players in the housing market, um, sort of in the, the affordable housing ecosystem. So the three goals that we outline are first, think about opportunities to increase the total amount of long-term affordable rental housing. Uh, that's always a challenge. Are there going to be new opportunities to bring more housing into the stock and put some long-term restrictions on them? especially in high opportunity communities where housing is just expensive, there's always a need for it, um, and there aren't that many chances to to increase the supply. The second goal is to protect the existing affordable housing. Um, So we know that there are a lot of older, unsubsidized properties that provide a lot of the, the naturally occurring affordable housing. Many of those are gonna be stressed at the moment, both financially, as tenants have a hard time staying current with their rent payments, 
but also physically that landlords may have a difficult time maintaining those buildings and then they're at risk of becoming uninhabitable and falling out of the stock. So we wanna think about ways to make sure the existing affordable housing stays habitable and stays affordable. The third goal is probably less of a priority for places that are really facing resource constraints, but to think about projects that are currently in the pipeline and make sure that those finish. Um, we know that recessions and slowdowns in construction are, are often very hard for projects that are in process, um, and particularly so for affordable housing, where you may have a variety of subsidies and uh, private capital sources. So for places that have some properties that are still in the development pipeline, if there's anything they can do to make sure that those don't just stop, um, because it's very hard to resume them once they go out of process. All right, so let, let's look at that first goal and, and some of the solutions that uh, you know, you're thinking about in the paper. So first goal, of increasing the amount of long-term affordable rental housing, uh, which is, like as you said, hard enough to do anyway. Now we're, you know, this is long-term solutions, right? So coming out of a pandemic, what do you see as, as the way that we can we can tackle this problem? Yeah, we are hoping that this is going to provide a little bit of a window to use acquisition of existing properties. Um, and that's not typically the focus of affordable housing. Often when we talk about increasing the number of affordable units, what we really mean is ground up new development. Um, but we actually think that acquisition is a particularly good strategy right now for a couple of reasons. Um, so it's quite likely that some of the uh, some of the real estate markets are going to soften as we go forward. Um, as people are having a hard time paying rent, the asset prices are likely going to dip some. Um, and that means that there may be not quite a bargain, but a chance to buy properties that might have been out of reach a couple of years ago. Um, acquisition has actually three strong advantages over new construction. One is it's faster. <laughs> um, it takes a long time to build housing, to identify a property, uh, line up the financing, do all of the development and construction, and then lease up. Acquisition offers a chance to put some units in play uh, very quickly. Even if they need rehab, it's generally a quicker process. The second advantage to acquisition is that it's generally cheaper. The cost per unit to acquire an existing building is almost always lower than new construction the same location would be. Um, and the third advantage is it's a chance to get some below market rate units into high opportunity neighborhoods, places that have good schools, that are safe, that have good access to jobs and transportation, those are very often the kinds of places that push back against doing new development, particularly for below market rate housing. So if we can acquire some existing multifamily properties, you get a chance to open up access to these high opportunity neighborhoods that are otherwise really just off limits. Yeah, those are those are great points. And uh, and it does seem like there would be an opportunity uh, more so than than at other times. And, and part of that would just be the attention um, that's coming through to uh to the housing market and to the vulnerability of renters right now and i know that but this would take um you know that awareness and then also you know people willing to come in and and i think that still probably requires subsidy and, and philanthropy and people to act on those on those needs um can is, do you do you see opportunity for that yeah, the, the question is always, where does the money come from? <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, affordable housing is always looking for uh, for new sources of subsidy. Um, typically, the, the funding for new construction comes through a handful of federal subsidies. Um, and it's, you know, it's not clear that those are going to change in the short term. It takes a while to get through the congressional budget process. 
Um, but this may also be an area where there's an opportunity to bring in both some philanthropy um, and potentially to leverage some private capital dollars. Uh, so we, we've looked at a couple of programs that have managed to tap into different sources of subsidies to do acquisition before. Um, in particular, this tends to be an area where leveraging a small amount of seed capital looks really attractive because you're going to have a relatively short time until the properties are online and leased up and bringing in income. So, so one of the things that that uh, struck me too in your comments, uh, you know, often when you when you have a preservation-minded borrower uh, or developer looking to acquire existing properties, they end up in competition with uh, somebody who may not be preservation-minded, and then uh, who can then outbid them. So, do you see you know maybe less uh, less of a bidding war uh, at this time? It's possible, um, and it's it, you know it, it's really going to vary quite a bit market to market. Um, so this is a time when, if you have cash available and you're looking to deploy it, uh, you know there should be some opportunities available both for private investors who are thinking about market rate housing, as well as uh, public entities or nonprofits. A lot of it's really going to come down to kind of deciding where local governments or uh, or nonprofits want to concentrate. So for instance, if they're pursuing a strategy of acquiring existing buildings in high opportunity neighborhoods, those are they're gonna be looking probably at older properties, maybe that need a little bit of rehab, um, but that come available for sale in those markets. I think another question is whether there are properties that are likely to go into financial distress. Um, if landlords, for instance, are having a hard time making their property tax payments, that gives the local government a chance to come in We've certainly seen that in past cases where often uh, local governments wind up acquiring properties through uh, through tax liens, and then those can be transferred to an affordable housing developer um, or a nonprofit. Those are um, very um, tangible opportunities, I think that, uh, and um, as we think about, you know, that almost moves into your second point in terms of uh, maintaining the, uh, the properties that are there and affordable now. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on that right now. Sure, that's a that's definitely a concern as we see uh, tenants having a hard time making the rent payments. Uh, that the you know the rent payment goes to the landlord, who then uses it to operate and maintain the building. A lot of what we call the naturally occurring affordable housing, the unsubsidized affordable housing, these are older buildings, and so they're buildings that have pretty high demands for maintenance anyway. Uh, Landlords often operate on pretty thin margins, which means if you've got a four unit building and one or two tenants are falling behind on their rent because they've lost their jobs, the landlord is then losing funds that they could be using to maintain the property. Um, and these are often properties that require uh, ongoing maintenance to be to maintain viability. So these are some cases where we might think about rather than transferring ownership of the property to another entity, providing maybe some small dollar grants or loans to the landlords so that they can keep the buildings in habitable shape, keep them up operating um, and not have to take on additional debt, which would then make it harder for them to keep the, the, market, the rents below market. We do know that a couple of cities have, so Philadelphia comes to mind, has a program for homeowners um, to be able to borrow fairly small amounts of money for essential repairs that keep the house habitable and keep the, the tenant in place. So it might be possible to expand some of those programs that are geared at homeowners to include small mom and pop landlords. So do you see this as uh, sort of something favoring uh, smaller properties? You know, you mentioned four units. Is this something that you see more of in the two to four unit space or 
or five to 50 unit space, or, or do you see it also occurring uh, for bigger properties? That's going to vary a little bit across markets. Um, so there, for instance, DC, where, where I'm based, um, has a lot of single family and particularly row houses, older row houses that are some of the affordable rental stock. Uh, we've got quite a bit of two to four family properties as well. Um, in markets like New York, you don't have as many of the really small properties. So this may be more kind of the five to 20 unit space. But almost all major metro areas have quite a lot of this sort of below 20 unit buildings that are older. We don't build a lot of them anymore, uh, but those tend to be a lot of the unsubsidized rental market. And a lot of them tend to be owned by small non-professional landlords who don't have access to the same kind of capital sources that owners of larger buildings do. And you had mentioned earlier that uh, you know in Philadelphia, there was a program that, that leveraged the... Um kind of a, a residential, what uh, was targeted at residential was expanded to use for multifamily. I know in the paper, you also talk about the uh, neighborhood stabilization program and New York was able to do a similar uh, kind of uh, approach with that, where it was largely a, a residential, single family residential program, but was expanded in a way to benefit multifamily. Yeah, the neighborhood stabilization program uh, offers a really nice model to think about how to structure an acquisition program uh, so this was something that was created by Congress during the Great Recession, initially intended to stabilize single-family neighborhoods that had high rates of foreclosures. Uh, so HUD gave these, these lump sum grants to state governments, local governments, and to a number of nonprofits uh, to go in and buy up a bunch of single-family homes that were in foreclosure. The initial idea was to have those uh, rehabbed and then turn them back over to homeowners, uh, so keep them owner-occupied. Um, but they ran into a couple of problems, one of which was it was very hard to get low-income borrowers qualified for mortgage during the sort of 2009 to 2011 window. Um, and so a number of the grantees in places like New York, Chicago, D.C., L.A. wound up buying multifamily properties that they could use as rental stock, usually trying to buy a property that didn't need a total rehab, that needed some amount of work but was fairly habitable. Um, and they could deploy a fair amount of money at once to buy this property, rehab it, which wound up being sort of a jobs program as well during the recession, um, and then get people into it. And so that, you know, that was, it was a new strategy for particularly local governments. Cities often aren't long-term property owners and managers, uh, so it took a little bit of adapt, uh, adaptation on their part. But this wound up then creating a bunch of affordable units that otherwise we wouldn't have had access to. I want to pause on one point there, which is, uh, you know, you're saying the cities you know, didn't have a lot of experience uh, owning and operating property. So was it the cities themselves, department in the city, or would it be the local housing authority that would come in and, and do that work? The way the neighborhood stabilization program was designed, the grants went usually either to the city or county government or to a state agency acting on behalf of smaller governments. It didn't go through housing authorities. Um, and so that was part of the issue that most cities independent of the housing authority don't acquire and own and operate rental properties. Uh, and so this was a new thing for them to do. Uh, the city of Los Angeles, which got one of the larger grants because it had so many foreclosures, wound up creating, in fact, a sort of a special purpose entity that was still publicly owned, but that was separate from the city um, that allowed them to be more flexible. So they, they needed to be able to go to essentially foreclosure auctions and buy up properties. Sometimes they couldn't get access to do an inspection before the purchase because they were held in foreclosure. Um, and so they needed to have kind of a 
a new entity that got around some of the procurement rules that uh, that normally apply to city purchases and had to sort of build that from the ground up in order to be able to implement it. And you mentioned also the uh, the jobs uh, side effect, but um, so was that truly a side effect of the program or um, or is that a deliberate uh, outcome? Were they thinking if, uh, if we do this neighborhood stabilization pro- program with the grants and that we have that it will also create jobs? Yeah. I mean, the primary goal was to stabilize neighborhoods by reducing the supply of vacant homes. Um, but the jobs creation was actually an intentional part of that. Um, and because obviously this was during the Great Recession, construction industry was just devastated. And so this was a great way to hire a bunch of local contractors doing everything from electrical and plumbing, uh, you know, brickwork, pretty much everything involved in the construction process. Um, and in a number of markets that we talked, uh, when we talked to the NSP grantees, they said that this was almost the only construction or renovation activity going on during that time period. So this wound up being a, a pretty important uh, part of the program that didn't necessarily show up in things like local housing prices, but it definitely shows up in the multiplier effect. Yeah, that, that's great to see. Do you, do you see that um, as a you know, potential benefit this time around as well, if, if a similar program were were implemented? Yeah. So one of the trade-offs with an acquisition strategy, um, entities that target properties that are already in pretty good shape aren't going to create as much uh, employment because they don't need to do a lot of rehab. On the other hand, they get the property up and running faster um, and may wind up spending less money on it. So you may be able to maximize the total number of units. But if you pursue something that's more of a gut rehab strategy, there's more employment, but it's longer and a little bit more costly. Um, so one of the things that we we observed with NSP was that grantees didn't always have a clear strategy going in about what their their top goals were. And so they wound up kind of going back and forth between different kinds of properties and different kinds of acquisitions uh, until they figured out what worked for them. It seems either way you have a positive outcome. It's just uh, where on which side is it leaning? Yeah. And, and one question, I think, uh, for the overall housing construction and renovation industry now is how... Uh, how the the current economic restrictions are impacting that. So cities and states have had different approaches, whether they stop construction altogether because of potential health risks. Some places have exempted construction, saying that that's a relatively low-risk area, uh, not high risk of transmission between construction workers. In some cases, they have carved out particular kinds of construction, including sometimes affordable housing or or public facilities. Uh, But I think we don't yet know when the construction industry is going to ramp up. So how much kind of excess labor supply is there waiting and looking for jobs? And I think um, it's, it's great how we kind of can pull and learn from previous recessions. And I think that uh, um, uh, you've done a great job of, of doing that here and in this discussion as it relates to the last recession. And then there's always the, the differences with this one. I know that we speak to um, uh, I think renters being more vulnerable on this one. And then, you know, in the context of, of everything that's happening related to, to race in the country right now, I think that's a, that's a further concern as to, you know, you talked about areas of opportunity before, and we talk about how these programs can, can uh, impact neighborhoods and different populations differently. Um, do, do you see opportunities here in, in, and how this is approached to address that issue as well. Yeah, I think that has to be part of the conversation. Uh, you know, there's more attention right now than in many decades on how much racial segregation still remains, um, how much that's reinforced by our existing housing system, including very much the system of local control over development. 
you know, I mentioned that uh, some of the high opportunity neighborhoods that have good jobs and good schools, we'd really like for low income renters, moderate income families to be able to live in those communities. But those are often places that have a lot of opposition to new construction, even market rate, um, and especially to affordable housing. So I'm, I'm hoping that the larger conversation about racial inequity maybe makes us rethink this local control system. You know, there, there are reasons for regional labor markets and just for equity to try to open up these high opportunity communities to a much broader range of income, open them up to black and Latino families who've been discriminated against both in mortgage lending and just de facto by not having enough wealth and income to buy into these communities. So hope, hopefully we'll have more of a conversation about how to make the housing production system fairer and create more housing at lots of different price points in high opportunity neighborhoods. So Jenny, how, how much of that also, when, when we think about the uh, local influence, how much of that ties into the zoning that is in place and, and efforts to change that zoning? It's entirely linked with the local zoning system. You know, we, we have a, a system now where communities down to the neighborhood level get to decide the type of housing that they want next door. There's a lot of ability for current residents to push back against proposed new construction that they don't like. Um, and people who don't yet live in that community who would benefit from it have no voice in the system. Um, so they're effectively disenfranchised, even though they would benefit from new housing being built. Um, so this is this is a system that's evolved over the last hundred years in the U.S. Um, people are very attached to their local control, but there's some real downsides, both in terms of how well la local labor markets function. You know, we wind up with a lot of the lower cost new housing being built on the urban fringes. And then you wind up with essential workers having enormously long commutes to get to work because they can't afford to live closer to work, right? So that's bad for labor markets, that's bad for the environment, and that's clearly bad for all of the racial equity outcomes in housing that we've been observing. The point that, you know, how well tied in it is to the zoning, I think speaks to a lot because it's not, right, it seems that it's not just a matter of Oh, you know, if people just change their minds, like, yeah, okay, I'll say yes to the to this project. I'll say yes to the next one. It, it's a bit more than that because it's actually in land use regulation. So an extra step would need to be taken to address that, right? That's right. We would we would need to go back and rewrite zoning. And if you look at the zoning codes in almost every community in the U.S., big cities, suburbs, small towns. The, the one sort of consistent factor is that they give preference to single family detached housing over all other structures. Uh, so building multifamily buildings, even relatively small, these sort of, you know, five to 10 unit buildings that we were talking about before, it, those are illegal to build in most parts of the U.S. And so if you can only build a single family detached house, it takes more land, it's a bigger structure, it's more expensive. So we've we've adopted zoning almost universally across the U.S., that is prejudiced against rental housing and against lower cost housing. So when we look at high opportunity areas um, you know, that have all the, these amenities, um, many of them, I would think, are largely pretty well developed now, you know, with a lot of single family homes and all that. So do are there issues of availability of land as well, not just uh land zoned for rental, but just availability of land generally? And, and if so, how does that get addressed? Yeah, it depends on where we're looking. Um, certainly the, the central cities don't have a lot of undeveloped land. 
Uh, a number of the suburbs and even suburbs fairly close in still do. Uh, I just I did a blog post recently with Leah Brooks where we mapped out uh, satellite data of the DC metro area. And for instance, Fairfax County and Montgomery County, which are close in suburbs, actually have an enormous amount of undeveloped land. Um, it may be held under some sort of a conservation easement, uh, but we actually have a lot of land available. So except for dense central cities, land availability uh, just on the face of it isn't really a problem. But what we do see is that a lot of communities that have very high land values are locked into low density patterns because we built big single family homes on big lots, say 20 or 30 years ago. There's a lot of open space. It's just somebody else's backyard. Um, and at some point, we're going to have to figure out how to turn these sort of big single family lots into more than one house. Um, if you've been following the conversation going on in Minneapolis for the last year and a half, that's one of the things they've been trying to do. Say, all right, we have a whole bunch of these single family neighborhoods. Land values have gone up. It would make sense to redevelop them at least as small multifamily buildings. Let's make that legal to do. So let's say that as of right, you can build a two family, three family, four family building. Um, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things, if you walk around neighborhoods um, in neighborhoods that have been gentrifying in central cities, you'll see that we can create a lot of housing units within existing structures or taking up the same amount of space as existing structures. But instead of it being a single family three bedroom house, you create three one bedroom condos. Um, and so we see a lot of these conversions of row houses uh, in neighborhoods like D.C., we also see just you know demolition of a small uh, single family house and replacing it with an eight unit condo building. So we can fit a lot more housing onto most of the valuable land if it's legal to do that. That contrasts well to, I think with uh, the, there's discussions that we hear related to the pandemic that um, uh, you know, urban places may be more at risk, but, uh, but I, I think that you do a great job of, of capturing that uh, it's it's not so much the urban areas as much as it is overcrowded housing, and uh, and that this housing that you're talking about, where we're adding a unit or uh, would would create units that are habitable by households that that are don't make for crowding, which is kind of forced right now. That's exactly right. Um, and we see this especially in sort of lots of high immigrant neighborhoods um, in expensive cities that there are neighborhoods that were built mostly as single family homes, uh, both in the cities and the suburbs, and have become largely kind of working class immigrant neighborhoods. So what you have is a, a, maybe a three or four bedroom house that's now being inhabited by eight or 10 unrelated roommates who are sharing this space. And they're doing that because they can't afford to have a place of their own. So most people would like to, would rather have you know, a studio or one bedroom apartment that's private space than have eight roommates. But if we don't build enough of the smaller, more affordable units, then people wind up crowding into these shared spaces. And it turns out that's really dangerous for public health concerns. So Jenny, on, on that point of crowding, um, it seems like essentially the the way the housing system exists today, the you know, lack of available and affordable housing essentially exacerbates health impacts of this pandemic and, and presumably any any others. Yeah, that seems to be the evidence that's coming out, that we see higher rates of community spread and infection in places where we have overcrowded units, meaning by HUD's definition, more than two people per bedroom. So we've got a lot of people crammed into a single unit 
rather than having separate units, particularly with things like separate bathrooms and kitchens where people don't have to share space. Um, because we have made it so hard to build multifamily housing, build smaller units, uh, to build low cost units, we've made it difficult to build exactly the kind of housing that would provide kind of safe, habitable, private space for low wage workers. You know, I want to circle back to something that we talked about before, which was um, lo- local governments or public entities taking ownership of properties and uh, and maybe holding it for a while and transferring that over to uh, to private entities. Uh, that seems like it can be pretty tricky. Um, can, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so in, in some cases, like, for instance, New York City's uh, 10-year plan and their acquisition program, the, the initial entity that buys the property or that receives the property through tax uh, through tax foreclosure um, is the essentially the city government or the county government. But often those entities aren't really set up to be property managers. <laughs> I mean, it takes a whole skill set to be running a property, maintaining it, and collecting rent and so forth. Um, that's not the primary business model of both of most local governments. Um, and so many of them have tried not to be the long-term owners. They may construct it or take uh, take ownership initially, but then try to transfer ownership to somebody who's a professional property manager. Um, depending on kind of the local housing ecosystem, that could be a nonprofit agency that owns and manages affordable housing and does the kind of property management. It could also potentially be a private uh, property owner um, there in a lot of markets, the private firms, private developers build and own and maintain affordable housing. Um, so it's really a matter of figuring out within the local market, what's the entity that has the capacity to provide good ownership and good stewardship of the property. One thing that we haven't talked about along the way yet is uh, that there's um, a need often to uh, to finance these properties and, and the capital stack can get fairly complex for creating affordable housing. Um, do you see opportunities there during this time? Yeah, particularly if, if there's an interest in starting up new programs. So for one thing, because acquisition tends to be cheaper, the development, it doesn't take quite as many different pieces of subsidy to make it work. Um, and because the timeline is shorter to getting properties uh, up and running and bringing in income, this may also be more attractive to bring in some private capital. It's a little bit less risky. You don't need to have a construction load and then take it out with a permanent mortgage. But I, I would say if if any local governments are thinking about setting up a program, remembering that the more complicated the capital stack, the more the higher the soft costs of the project. You know, the more time and money is spent by specialized consultants and lawyers putting together the financing structure, which eats up then the amount of money that can be used to just provide housing. Um, one of the things that New York City has done, and actually DC is trying to do this now with the Washington Housing Conservancy, is to try to put together a pot of funds in advance of a specific deal. So get some seed funding potentially from philanthropy, um, maybe from some private investors who have a, a social impact model in mind. So to have a pot of funds that are available already and be able to deploy that quickly when properties come up for acquisition without necessarily having to line up project-specific funding. So the the funding is essentially for the the larger fund, not for the property. Um, And then thinking in advance about what the returns are to the investors in exchange for what kinds of affordability restrictions. So to have kind of a standard out-of-the-box model that says, you know, we're going to provide uh, you know, a low interest loan for 15 years. And during that time period, 
you know, 80% of the units have to be available at, you know, 60% of AMI, but to have some, some set terms of this that are already arranged so that you don't have to do a project by project negotiation, both for what goes into the funding side and what the affordability restrictions are, particularly if they're going to be uh, private developers or private owners involved with the deal. Yeah, that, uh, that theme of, of a predictable uh, and, and, and consistent uh Rules is something that's been coming up a lot in our conversations recently. Uh, so f- for that, um, you know, just I, th- I think we all know that that any uh, any loan, any any development, there there's a large part of that that is uh, legal documents and legal negotiations. So do you see, um, you know, through this also just sort of standardized uh, you know, legal frameworks from from the localities, or do you see? Uh, you know, more flexibility from the localities in accommodating uh, other lenders, other um, uh, and, and also developer interests in order in order to get things acquired quickly and, and preserved. Yeah, I think some of this comes back to the question of what's the capacity of the local government that's sort of shepherding the, the project uh, or the or the fund. So New York City has usually some of the more complex programs and does a lot of these one-off negotiations. But New York City is a giant agency. You know, they have multiple agencies devoted to housing. They have very high capacity staff. They have a lot of lawyers and people with financial expertise in-house to work on this. Smaller local governments generally don't have that. And so for them, I think there's a real advantage to structuring something that's as simple as possible, as replicable as possible. It's very clear, both for the local government and for any partners they bring in, um, you know, do the, do the brain damage the first time around to create a structure that works pretty well, and then don't try to mess with it too much to sort of repeat something that works well. Got it. You know, that makes a lot of sense. So Jenny, this has been a fantastic discussion so far. And, you know, looking at, at the uh, the paper that, that you all put out, uh, you end with some policy design questions that we should all be considering. So why don't we uh, go there uh, before we wrap up our discussion today? So what were those questions? Sure. So I think the probably the first and the most important is that the, the community needs to figure out what their priorities are, what they're trying to accomplish with this, so that they can lay out the, the design of the program to meet it. Um, so figuring out, do you want to focus more on acquisition, on maintaining the existing stock? Um, are there particular income bands that are particularly important for you to meet? So sort of getting a clear strategy that meets the local priorities, the local needs um, up front, and then being able to follow through on that. Um, the second is something we've just touched on, which are what kind of entities do you think are going to be involved in partnership? Is this exclusively public agencies? Does this include nonprofits and for-profits? Um, and if so, do you have an idea of kind of who's likely to be a useful partner that's already in the local market? Um, this question of whether local governments want to own the properties or transfer it over, which again depends on kind of who's in their ecosystem and what kind of existing relationships they have. One of the things that we haven't really talked about yet is sort of if if the local government wants to transfer ownership to a nonprofit entity, there might be an opportunity to use uh, either community land trusts or limited equity co-ops. Those are pretty small scale, but in some markets, they've been very successful in having and ensuring long-term affordability, potentially even with home ownership. Um, Figuring out what the availability is of uh, private funds and philanthropic funds so that you can leverage any of the public capital um, and you know, sort of expand the reach of the program. Um, 
and then being clear about what kinds of long-term affordability provisions you're looking for. Some of this is going to be balancing how much subsidy is available and what level of households can be served. It takes a lot of subsidy to make housing affordable to very low-income households. And so in the absence of probably an ongoing federal subsidy, that's going to be hard for most local governments to do. But reaching moderate-income households and kind of what we think of as workforce housing is likely to be more feasible without needing a deep subsidy. So all of those are kind of just a checklist for, to think about kind of inventorying what the resources are and what the goals of the community are, and then designing a policy that matches those up well. Uh, and, and then when you focus on the uh, workforce housing segment, so sort of that intervention in the middle, does that also uh, make things better for those making very low incomes? You know, increase availability there as well, just by creating more supply? It's, it's helpful not to have kind of middle-income households competing with low-income households for the same apartments, which is what we wind up seeing in places that overall aren't building enough new rental housing. Um, and so if you can provide enough housing for, uh, for middle-income households or, or workforce households uh, so that they're not competing away the, the cheapest housing um, then that, that does relieve the pressure on low-income households. Jenny, again, thank you so much. This has been a, a great discussion and really fortunate to have had you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.